You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kirsten Menger Anderson has been shortlisted for the Richard Yates Award, the Glimmer Train Short Story Award for New Writers, the Iowa Review Story Contest, and the Andre Dubose Award. Her first book is Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. Kirsten, this is a really wonderful book, and it has some very interesting literary techniques. Now, this is, I think, the first book where I've ever seen anybody use a genealogy table as a, as a literary device. <laughs> so tell me a little bit how, how you conceived of, of the, the idea for this book and, and explain what that idea is. Actually, the genealogy, too, is not one of the first things I did. It, it evolved in the process of writing the book. Um, I started writing individual short stories. The first one I wrote was Reading Grandpa's Head about phrenology, and that got me interested in just the history of medicine and medical science, and I read a couple medical histories, which inspired other pieces, and I had several stories, four or five maybe, when I decided this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book about some of the previous ideas we'd had in medicine that might seem foolish now, but in their times were common and, you know, used. As I was writing them, I got the idea of, of tracing a family. 
And so some of the pieces that I had already written, I had to rewrite a little bit in order to make them conform to one story per generation or, you know, change the characters a little bit to fit the ages or the relationships that I needed. Um, and I actually bought a piece of genealogy software. You know, something I found a $30 piece of software and I used it to construct this family tree. It was a lot of fun. I, I just I made all the relationships and um, I realized as I was doing it that I had never done that for my own family. I mean, I did a fictional family before my own, so that actually prompted me to make a family tree for my family. Um, but my first family tree was with the software and for this book. And it was very useful as I was working on the book because it helped me keep track of, um, you know, how old the characters were and how, uh, how much time had passed. And it became a tool for me, somewhat like an outline, um, just as I was writing. Also, you know, when I made changes, I'd change the tree or, you know, as I was rereading, I would check the tree to the text to make sure that it was consistent. Well, you know, as a reader, it's really interesting because I was found myself constantly referring to it and really liking it the way that it, it allows you to do something, I think, really interesting um, to create uh, individual like little jewel like stories that, that have relationships. And then we can go back and forth between the two. It, it lets the reader be a detective in a way. And it's a really interesting technique. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk about as you put this book together how much you decided to leave in and out of the stories and the connections between the stories? Uh, there are characters from previous stories that appear in later stories. Usually they're not main characters in more than one story for, for the most part. I like to put little hints of what happened to people. Usually it wasn't something that is fundamental to the story, but it's something that readers could pick up on and say, oh, now I know what happened to that Macy's clerk, or I know what happened to Lubert Doss, or just little little clues, I guess, in, in a way. Yes, you can trace the family, or perhaps the character's not in another story, but you can see, oh, wow, they died just a year later. So yeah, there are little clues to what happened to everyone. Now, when you, you say the first book you wrote, or first story you wrote, was, was uh, Reading Grandpa's Head. <laughs> <laughs> which is such a great title. And, and this brings up one of my favorite topics, phrenology. So uh, what, what did you, when did you first encounter phrenology? What made you decide to write a story about it? I know that I was reading about phrenology, and that inspired the story. I think I didn't know much about it, and I can't remember now how it had come up, but I was looking it up just to learn more about it. And I was very taken by all the names for the different organs and the head and the whole idea of reading personality just by rubbing hands over the skull. and Could you explain what it is real, real quickly to, to the listeners? Phrenology is the science of um, determining personality by just rubbing your fingers over your head, over your skull, and feeling the bumps and the indentations, and that will tell a trained phrenologist what a person's strengths and weaknesses are their tendency to murder, their tendency to love their children, their love for colors. They're just all different all different aspects of personality can be can be figured out just by the shape of your head. Now, you say this in a manner that scares me. <laughs> you make it sound are there still people around who believe in phrenology? Subscribe to it? There may be. I I don't know. It's certainly not a common common belief if if, if it is believed. I know the um, the phrenologist in the story, actually, his um, first name, Fowler, is a nod to some 
to the Fowler brothers, who were practitioners of phrenology in, in around the time of the story. Now, once you kind of came up with the the, the you you started. Did you deliberately write another book or another story? <laughs> I have to say, the reason I'm saying this is because the stories seem are really full. They're full of life. It's almost like reading a little book. It's like a a, a highly compact ten book series in here. Um, uh, once when you started, once you wrote the story, reading Grandpa's head, did that pique your interest in, in writing? stories that are based around our understandings of medicine, or when did that come out? Pretty much right away. Uh, pretty much, I I was so taken by the phrenology story, I really was happy with reading Grandpa's Head. I sought out the medical histories, and I found it more inspiration in them. And I actually, I've written additional pieces on medical ideas or medicine in the past that aren't in the book. I mean, I, I've, I was very taken by by that topic. Now, um, as you started doing the research for each story, I have to ask you, did, did the stories come out of the research, or, that is, as you're trolling through our, the hist, our tortured history, <laughs> literally <laughs> tortured history of medicine, um, did, did you, you'd see an idea and it'd jump out at you and the characters would come? Or could you talk a little bit about the interplay between the research and the creation of the stories? I know that the seed for most of them was the science. Mm -hmm. Not all. One of them, say, my name is Lubert Das. That one came from a painting. Mm, and um, it's a Bosch painting called Extraction of the Stone of Madness. And it's basically a painting that depicts a, a, a trepanation, which is the technique in the story. But in that story, the character is Lubert Das, who, which is a, an inscription on the painting. It's kind of translates to master remove the stone my name is Lubert Doss and so I had the character and the medicine at once and and I just wow when I was writing it yeah I was thinking about that painting or you know that's that was a spark for it it it, it came with sort of this foolish fool and a little bit crazy in the, in the story but that's where that one came from I knew that when I read about curative radium which is one of the techniques in his story. I knew that I wanted to write a piece about it, and the characters fell out. And I can't say where, how, how it did. I don't remember now. A lot, you know. I wrote these over a period of four or five years, and a lot of the initial thinking about these stories happened a while ago. And I, I can't tell you now how it happened. I don't, I don't recall. But I know that I have content generation deadlines that I put on myself when I'm drafting, and. I would sit and write and you know 2000 words say in a day and so some of it just fell out of that exercise of of drafting and coming up with stories and forcing myself to come up with stories and characters and so you're a, a word per day person. I'm a word per day person. Yes. Do you it's, write at the same time every day? I like to write in the mornings, which is a little bit surprising because I never really was a morning person, but I find now that that's the time that before other parts of the day start draining my energy. <laughs> that's, the, that's the time when I, I seem to get the most work done or the best work done.
Well, let's talk about some of the individual stories because they're, they're all just really wonderful. Uh, the, the story that begins the book is the, the title story, Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain. Um, <laughs> it's set in 1664, uh, and I guess that brings me another kind of process question. When you started creating this book uh, and creating the generations, uh, could you talk a little bit about the dates? I mean, why did you choose this date for this story and this place to start? I, um, the first story was one I wrote later. So it was after I'd already decided to do a book. Mm -hmm. Um, and I chose that date. The driving force, I think, or inspiration behind that book was a nonfiction book I was reading. What nonfiction book? It was called Soul Made Flesh by Carl Zimmer. Um, and it was basically the search for, basically, I mean, it was the search for the soul and the brain. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, and probably the date fell out of that. Now, one of the things in this story that I really love is this is this concept that, and this comes back again and again, uh, we can heal the soul. And I really love that idea that, that um, we think now of medicine as being very uh, physically based. We cure. It's all about, you know, the bits and things, you know, chemistry. It's all, we're all a, gi a giant chemical reaction. And so your parents were actually, in many ways, perfect doctors. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the, this is one of the things I love about this book, the, the perceptions of medicine that we see it and, and that we see characters who, for their time, are very learned, but we know far more than them. Could you talk about uh, the process of creating these characters who are advanced for their time, you know, the whiz kids for their time or, or, you know, brainiacs, as it were. But now they just seem like primitive and somewhat scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of the, the themes of the book or one of the themes that I was really interested in, which is that our ideas of truth and what is healthy and what is good has really changed over the years, sometimes because of technologies that are available to us now that weren't available before, you know, just plain trial and error experiments and, you know, all, all of these ideas of the past from our standpoint today, we can see that perhaps they were ill-advised or maybe they most certainly were ill-advised, but that in a few generations, people will look back at us today, perhaps with the same criticisms of some of the practices we have today as standard. And I don't know what they are. I mean, I'm very happy to go to the doctor and get medicine when I'm feeling sick, but I suspect my grandchildren might think that some of the things I did were, were pretty scary. <laughs> One thing that, that um, happens that is said in this in Dr. Von, Olaf von Schuler's brain, and this is a really great perception, is that he's unhappy or, 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 you know, flummoxed by the fact that at the time, people could watch someone die and think it was God's will that they die. And yet it was the devil's work to try to stop that death. And that's a really fascinating turnaround perception that we it seems crazy to us today, or to most of us at least. Yeah. I think also one of the sparks for that story is that the idea of uh, performing an autopsy was frowned upon. You, you couldn't open up a human body and, and look at the organs inside. There's a bit in the beginning about um, the head of a cow that resembled the one in Galen's anatomy. And I, I read 
that actually the brain picture there was the cow brain because even back in Galen's time, you know, throughout the centuries, the body was somewhat sacred. You couldn't, you couldn't open it up. And so there, it really made it very difficult to learn about how it worked. In that sense, finding the cure, learning more, was violating something that was sacred. Or, you know, was it, uh, there was a lot of opposition from various churches over the time against doing that. Well, one thing, too, that comes up in this story, and again and again throughout, I guess, our history of medicine, is the idea of curing emotions, <laughs> which is, I can think of a few emotions I would like to cure, not necessarily my own. <laughs> Could you talk about that idea of curing, like, violence and anger and madness? It comes up again and again in the collection, and often the cure is not effective. It proves impossible to cure the madness. Say in the story of the siblings, which is an early story about early psychosurgery, there is a brother and two sisters, and the youngest sister is mad, and the brother goes off to the continent and, and learns this technique for basically performing a lobotomy. It was before the term was applied to lobotomy, but it was more or less that procedure, and he really thinks that he's curing her violent tendencies and her madness by performing this on his on his sister and she dies several months after he does the surgery so i think as i was writing the book i really wanted the physicians to be doing their best to help people there's no malice there's no intention to hurt someone but often in their efforts to help people harm was harm was done now, we're introduced to another character in this story, and this is the one character who's consistent through the whole book, and that's the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is one of the things I love. There's so many things to love about this book, and this is one of the things I really loved is that this, the United States is, is there through the whole thing, and we get to see these glimpses of it. Could you talk about the integrating the history and the medicine and the characters? That's a, 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 a complicated juggling act that you keep up through the whole book, and you keep it up really well. Thank you. Yeah, a little bit about that. Sometimes I did choose dates based on social things that were happening um, because I didn't want to look just at medicine's dark past. I mean, there are things, social things in our past that have evolved and changed as well. And we look back on things like slavery or there are a big theme in the book is uh, women's rights. You know, there are mm -hmm. a couple stories. A hysteria, for example, deals with a woman who's her father prevents her from doing her work and claims that she has a disease, and that's what's causing her to you know, volunteer at a prison and be upset when he tells her that she can't anymore. In another story, women aren't allowed to vote, but they are allowed to vote for Congress. There's no, or, I'm sorry, run for Congress. There's no law about that, but I just, I wanted to include those just so as not to focus entirely on medicine. I, I didn't want to single out medicine as something that has a dark past. I mean, I think that a lot of things have changed over the 350 years <laughs> of, of, that this book covers.
Now, um, could you talk about the the process that you wrote all these stories and you didn't write them in the order we we read them in? Yeah, no. Uh, could you talk about the process of have, when you had all the stories, kind of uh, fitting them together and putting the book in? And you know, you're a short story writer. Was it easy for you to go out and get an agent? Did you have an agent at that time? Oh no, it it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, I in some ways, my job of putting them together was easy because they go in chronological order. So I just put them from earliest to latest. It wasn't like some some collections. I, I don't know how people decide which piece to put first or last. I mean, mine, I had a very clear pattern to follow when, mm-hmm. I, was, when I was assembling it. In terms of finding an agent, uh, it took me quite a while. I, uh, I, the, it went out, the collection went out under a different title with a different configurations of stories. And some of the stories changed. I was probably searching for an agent for about a year, um, and I just kept, I, I, you know, and the thing is, I'd also looked for agents for other books I'd written. I, I had a, I got an, a master's in English and creative writing from San Francisco State University, and I had a, you know, my thesis was a novel, and I tried to find someone to represent that, and no one did, and. I wrote another collection of stories, and I tried to find someone to represent that, and no one did. And then I wrote this collection of stories. And um, the thing that separated, I think, this from some of the previous ones is that I just, I didn't stop. I just kept revising it and sending it out to a new group of people. And not the collection, I mean, just a query letter, are you interested? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, finally, uh, there were two people who are interested in representing it. So I I took it very seriously. I flew out to the East Coast and met with them both. And I just, I really, really had a great meeting with uh, Eve Bridberg, who's my agent. I think she's fantastic. And I was actually her first client. I was the first person to sign up with her. But I knew she was just starting out as an agent. I just knew she was great. And I knew she could, if, if, if my book could be placed, she was she'd be able to do it, and she did. Now, um, well, this is very interesting. First book, so it was a first book for both you and your agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she she sent it out to, I'm trying to remember now, probably maybe 10 or 12 different publishers, and she explained to me that we'd do it in rounds, and this was the first round, and then there'd be another round, and unfortunately... Because I was very distracted when I knew it was out and people were, were reading it, I, I I was very very glad that someone was interested. Algonquin was interested in the first round, so it didn't take all that long once it was finally ready to go out. I did, um, I did work with my agent on the manuscript before it went out, so I I did work several rounds of, of revision with her um, before she sent it out. So that was more process, and then. Um, with the editors at Algonquin, went through several edits there as well. So now, how long did it take from the time you wrote Reading Grandpa's Head, set pen to paper, to the time you held this book in your hand for the first time? I I believe that I started Reading Grandpa's Head in 2001, possibly 2002. So six, seven years, probably all told. That's um, a lot of persistence. How, how did you maintain that, that, that 
drive for six, seven years for, for one book. Did you, you mentioned the other book. Did, did you kind of like go back and forth? And... <laughs> you know, I mean, I, um, I think there was something about this book that I wouldn't let go of it. I just kept working on it and working on it and, and working on it until until I got to hold it <laughs> in my hands, which, you know, wasn't true for some of the others. I may possibly go back to some of the others. I don't think so. I'm working on a new book now. It, you know, it's new material rather than something that I wrote before I wrote this because I do think that just the process of writing over and over, you know, it makes me a better writer, at least I hope. You know, so I, I, my hope is that the pages I'm working on now are um, going to be good ones. We'll, we'll see. But I'm having fun doing 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 it. I mean, I enjoy the writing. I found I found rejection because I I, I think it's I, as a writer I I wanted to have my work published. I wanted people to read it. So it was disheartening sending things out and not finding someone. Who wanted to represent it or not finding or getting you know the collection of form rejections from magazines or things like that it, it can be disheartening but i mean i never stopped writing i i just worked on this or if this was slow i was in a place where i was thinking you know i was in a drawer and i was waiting for some time to pass to edit it i, I worked on a, a, another manuscript so well tell us about your, your new book what are you working on now um i'm working on what I, I would call a more traditional novel, it follows one character from start to finish, a much shorter time frame, about three weeks, and it's set in Ecuador. Um, it also deals, it's also in the science world, it's ecology. Um, the characters are studying butterflies in the rainforest, sort of remote rainforest in Ecuador. The the new species that you were told never existed. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm still dealing with my fifth grade demons. Now, um, uh, could you talk about your uh, your you're working on a, a new book and you're you're touring for this book? Could you talk about what you have to do to when they release this book? I mean, books used to get I think uh, a certain amount more. Uh, push from a publisher? Could you talk about what they expect you to do in, in terms of, of getting people to read this book? Um, well, I think a common expectation is to have a website mm. um, to promote yourself as much as you can to your friends, your family. Um, I know that if I have an opportunity to write a piece for a blog, I do it. You know, I've done a number of small things like that. Um, I I have to say that I think Algonquin has done a fantastic job of spreading the word about the book. I think they're I think they're great. I I know I've I've been told a lot of people are are upset they don't think the publisher does enough for their book, but I I just feel grateful. I think they've they've done a wonderful job. Well, they, they printed a beautiful book, and it got to me. So, <laughs> mission accomplished, as far as I'm concerned. I've been speaking with Kirsten Menger Anderson. Her first book is Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain, and we've been picking Kirsten Menger Anderson's brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. <laughs> Thank you.
For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of January 25th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at trashotron.com. At Capitola Book Cafe on Monday, January 26th at 7.30 p.m., meet two masters of mystery, J. Sidney Jones, author of Empty Mirror, an historical thriller featuring the artist Gustav Klimt, and Claire Langley Hawthorne, author of The Serpent and the Scorpion, set in pre-World War I England and Egypt. Call 462-4415 for details. Tuesday, January 27th at 7.30 p.m., Capitola Book Cafe presents Hannah Holmes, author of The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself. Science journalist Hannah Holmes casts the inquisitive eye of a trained researcher to fashion an engaging and informative field guide to that oddest and yet most fascinating of primates, humans. Call 462-4415 for details. At Gateway's Books and Gifts, Wednesday, January 28th at 7 p.m., Awaken Out of Suffering, with Judith Cornell, Ph.D., the award-winning author of Mandala, Luminous Symbols for Healing. Cornell shares how her work helps others to awaken and embody awakening experiences. Call 429-9600 for details. At Capitola Book Cafe on Thursday, January 29th at 7.30 p.m., meet Nancy N. Chen, author of Food, Medicine, and the Quest for Good Health. Drawing on medical text and food therapy practices from around the world and throughout history, Chen, a medical anthropologist at UCSC and Scripps College, locates old and new crossovers between food and medicine in different social and cultural contexts. Call 462-4415 for more information. Thursday, January 29th at 7 p.m. at Gateways Books and Gifts, it's time to get up with author Bucky Sinister. Get Up is a 12-step guide to recovery for misfits, freaks, and weirdos with no excuses and no holds barred. Call 429-9600 for details. At Bookshop Santa Cruz, a Thursday, January 29th, at 7.30 p.m., local author Clifford Henderson, co-founder of the Fun Institute, a school of improv and solo performance, will celebrate her debut novel, The Middle of Somewhere. Call 423-0900 for more information. For the Agony Column in KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of January 25th, 2009. Get out there and read a book.
I'm speaking with Sean Stewart here at SFNSF. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Thank you. Sean, you started out as a novelist, and your novels were really rather unconventional, even though they were tagged, I think, as science fiction. I think that's because nobody could think of a, a better way to describe them. Um, yeah, well, possibly. Some, some of the books I wrote, I think, were, were very science fiction or fantasy, and some of them not so much. Um, I usually write stories about... Uh, slightly impossible things happening to hopefully fairly possible people. Uh, well, now that's an interesting uh, approach because uh, one of the things I, I really liked about your books was that they really did seem to uh, um, uh, arise from within. They were, um, even though that you had some of the uh, um, aspects of science fiction in them, they just really didn't seem like they were written by a science fiction writer. <laughs> Um, I guess I've always tried to use the the moves of non-realistic fiction to try to body forth certain kinds of emotional or psychological truths to the best of my ability. I think there's a reason in Hamlet that Hamlet doesn't just sit there on the wall saying, wow, am I guilty and bummed. But in fact, his father's ghost says, Hamlet, I am thy father's ghost, doomed to a certain term to walk the night. You know, there's a reason why it's just better that way. Um, and that's because sometimes those elements can give an emotional or a psychological truth a kind of uh, body and density and dramatic impact. Now, now, as a science fiction writer, now you, you've taken up a... a a rather, a, you're almost you're a science fiction writer in a science fiction setting, in a setting straight out of science fiction. Could you talk about how your experience, um, I think, working outside the box of science fiction, helps you be better working in this new environment? And describe a little bit what the new environment is, just so people who don't know know don't know what you're doing, have an idea. Um. Several years ago, I got involved in a project originally for uh, Steven Spielberg's film AI. And uh, we ended up telling a story uh, which reached out to you every way it could. Uh, we had web pages with text on them. We had video clips. We sent emails to your inbox. We called you on the phone. We sent faxes. We had live events. We built the fiction out around you and had it come to you every human way it could. Uh, advertisements in magazines, uh, chess puzzles in newspapers, um, things embedded in TV commercials. Every way the story could possibly come to you, it, it would try to come to you. And for the last seven years, I've been working building um, that kind of fiction, um, which has uh, come to be a, a subgenre called alternate reality games, or ARGs. Now, the ARG world is a, is a fairly intense uh, business competition. I mean, there's a lot of money in it right now. I mean, there's more money in, in video games, I think, than anything else. Could you talk about the collision between that hard-nosed, money-oriented business and, and, you know, your aspirations to really explore the edges of art? That's a really interesting question. When something is really new, you have a lot of latitude to mess with it. 
because even the client doesn't know what the hell it's supposed to look like. <laughs> so um, what we have been doing in both commercial and non-commercial contexts is trying to create a world and let people walk into it. When I was a kid, I grew up reading, for instance, the Narnia books. And so Lucy goes through the wardrobe into Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you read all about her adventures there. What's cool about what I get to do is I get to take you to Narnia. You don't read about Lucy, you go there. And you're going to have the conversations with those characters, and you're going to be part of that fiction. Um, when we're doing something in, for instance, a marketing context, so we did a big project called I Love Bees for the video game Halo 2. Um, what we were doing was building the world that in which Halo takes place, and we basically created a six-hour-long Casablanca-style radio drama um, and surrounded it um, with this elaborate web-based story and let people actually walk into that world and become a part of the world. And what the clients are asking for in that context is they say, okay, make it, you know, Halo. But inside that, we've been lucky enough to be given almost complete free reign. So there are characters, there are stories um, that people live and love and laugh and die. Um, usually I, I have at least as much uh, latitude in any of my creations as someone working on a network television show would have. And as a, in terms of, of the environment, do you feel yourself like uh, under greater financial pressure? I'm not sure how you mean the question. To be brutally honest, I get a lot better paid doing this than I get paid being a novelist. Um, <laughs> so uh, it would be very difficult for me to uh, pay my rent past a certain point being a midlist science fiction novelist. In that sense, I get to do more things that I like now. Um, can you maybe follow up on the question? Uh, sure. I mean. For example, if you innovate in some way to, like, you know, send a, a video email or, or an email that uh, allows the, the, the participant to be taped and that works out real well, do you have somebody, like, standing over your shoulder saying, what, what's, the, what's the next video email, Sean? Come on. What is it? No, not at all. No. We've had, a, we've had a lot of latitude. Um, and, like I say, nobody, nobody the hell knows what the, we're doing. So when we've been lucky enough to be able to say, we're going to do this now, and they say, that's awesome. That will be good, right? <laughs> um, we ourselves, um, uh, right, right now I work with a company called Fourth Wall Studios, which I founded along with a couple of other guys um, who have been working with me since uh, the AI project. And uh, we've had a lot of opportunities to try to grope our way to the edges of this new kind of storytelling. And we are constantly pushing ourselves to find out what works, what can people connect with, what makes it too confusing, what is a kind of story that is effective told in this way. I, I wish I could tell you that there was uh, that kind of driving pressure, but in fact, I experienced that a lot more um, in a funny way when I was writing novels because there's no money to promote novels and there's no, mo no money to be made in novels. So you don't have a lot of freedom about what you're gonna do except within the confines of your story where if you're lucky, you can do whatever the hell you like. 
but you don't get to shoot full motion video as part of writing your latest midlist science fiction novel. Um, I, Walter John Williams has a novel that's coming out called This Is Not a Game, and this is a quote that uh, you spoke during the uh, the session. Could you tell me a little a bit about um, your work with John? And, and uh, his novel is, is a, like a murder mystery set in your in your world, and I'm wondering how you feel about that. Oh, I, I'm, I was worked with uh, Walter on a project called Last Call Poker. I, it was a delight for me to be able to work with him. He's a guy that I started writing back in the 1980s uh, because I loved a book of his called Days of Atonement. Um, and uh, I also very much enjoyed a series of books he wrote uh, under the charming title Divertimenti. Um, there was one called House of Shards, which was a favorite of mine. So I wrote to him for years and years and years before I was even published. Uh, and he was always extremely kind to me. And uh, when we came to do the Last Call Poker Project, I needed someone with an encyclopedic history of the Wild West, both real and fictional. And I knew Walter had all that stuff, so I leapt at the chance to get him involved uh, on that project. And I'm delighted that Walter can uh, write books or make any use of that experience he likes. Um, he supplied us with um, one of the great taglines, I feel, in the genre. Um, uh, there's a, in that project, there was a stone cold killer. And uh, whenever he was about to uh, dispatch a victim, he would uh, pause and then look off camera a little to the side and say, that's a funny place for a canoe. And then the victim would turn around and the fatal shot would come. So Walter has entered that, I feel, truly deathless line into the lore. Uh, up, <laughs> it's still a little watchword in a very small circle of people to say, that's a funny place for a canoe right before something really bad's going to happen. Uh, uh, could you talk about the, the um, feedback between science fiction, written science fiction, and your work in the world of alternate reality games? Um, one of the places that alternate reality games have um, found a natural home, obviously, is in, in conjunction with science fictional projects, right? So the first alternate reality game was built for a science fiction movie by Steven Spielberg based on a short story by Brian Aldiss, the movie AI based on Super Toys Last All Summer Long by Brian Aldiss. Um, so it is not surprising that in a lot of the work that's been done in alternate reality games has been done by hardcore science fiction readers. And I personally have ripped off everybody. Um, I have pilfered from all the books I ever wrote and probably half the books everybody else ever wrote um, in trying to, to pull together fascinating uh, new worlds for people to enter. I find it really interesting that um, Walter John Williams, who's a, a science fiction writer, has written what is essentially a, a current day uh, murder mystery set in a world that, in the world of alternate reality gaming, that, that he actually helped create. Yeah. That's fun. I mean, if you scratch, if you give an author an experience, um, he will say, 
if, if I go to a bar mitzvah tomorrow, um, I will sit there thinking, wouldn't it be cool if there was a murder? Or maybe a wedding could break out. This is what we do. And in every circumstance we're in, we try to, uh, Michael Swanwick once said that authors aren't any more imaginative than anybody else. We just know a good story when we see one. So it does not surprise me at all that Walter, who has always had a fondness for murder mysteries, would uh, build one in the context of an alternate reality. I've been speaking with Sean Stewart. He's the founder of Fourth Wall Studios. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm speaking with Amy Bender at SFNSF. Thank you for joining me, Amy. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Amy, uh, your, the story you read was so interesting. Could you talk about the way that you developed the worlds of these stories? I mean, these stories have peculiar worlds that where inner and outer uh, are so concretely real. Thank you. Um, the story that I wrote half of when I was working on what became an invisible sign of my own, but it was just a scene that was tangential that didn't fit with that book at all, where the character wandered into this this word store, this fruit and word store. So then that kind of separated out and sort of sat there for a few years until it became its own short story, and then I added the whole thing about the relationship. So it kind of took a while to figure out, I think, where the inner world was that fit with what that outer world was, then what the hope was connected to, and the breaking of the hope. So that took that took time, but then it felt like those linked up, and then it felt like a complete story. Now, a- as you craft stories, um, it seems to me that from what you just told me that that that's a, a lengthy process for you. And, and how do you do you how do you keep track of, of all the various irons you have in the fire? Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because some of them aren't so lengthy, which is nice. It's nice when they'll just sort of spit out and then be done. But like I have a story. I, I sort of will have folders on my computer labeled by years. And so I'll look back 10 years and I'll still have like a story that needs an end or a half-finished piece. And so then I'll try to go back to that one. Because sometimes there's something about life that leads you to the ending of a story that I did not know how to end in 1998. You know, and now something has happened to me that then informs how I go about ending it. Well, now, are, are you still teaching? Yeah, I'm teaching uh, mostly at USC and... Um, near downtown LA. And I've been doing this Tin House Summers Conference, which is a week in July in Portland. 
Tell us about the Tin House Summer. It sounds interesting. It's great, actually. It's been so fun, and I think I've gone now for five years in a row because I like it so much, and, and they've been super supportive. But it's a week. It's eight days, and they have poetry and fiction and a little bit of nonfiction, and they have readings every night and sort of craft talks during the day, and it's on the campus of Reed College in Portland, and July is beautiful, and all the gardens are just exploding with flowers, and there's just good food and just good company. So I'll teach a workshop for seven mornings in a row, something like that, and people will bring in their work. And so it's intensive, but really it's a good experience. Now, Portland, if I'm not mistaken, is the home of Chuck Palahniuk, and you guys share a lot of similarities in the way you write. Do you guys work together or talk? You know, I've never met him, and I would love to meet him because he's got such a strong, great voice, so I like his work a lot. And and the sort of darkness and absurdity and all of that just shows up in his in his writing. But I've never met him, and it's funny because... Fred, I'd heard he's in Portland, but but they're just different paths. So hopefully, maybe this summer, maybe that'll be the meeting. Um, now, uh, tell me what you're working on now for publication. I'm working on a novel that is kind of in an editing stage where I'm kind of going back in and sort of re, you know, trying to deepen and complicate what's there. But I think a lot of the structure's in place, so it's coming along. It's just the kind of still in an intensive mode. But hopefully it's in its, you know, last stage. Just who knows how long that last stage will be. It may get drawn out, but it's not. It's certainly, I have a, quite a bit of it ready. Now, your work is so unusual and, and unique. And now you place it in a lot of uh, uh, literary magazines, McSweeney's and stuff. Uh, could you talk about um, your interaction? Because even for those places, I think it must be seem a, a little bit outre. Uh, could you talk about uh, some of the reactions you get to it? I think it's, when I was first sending out stories, it took a while to find the places. I mean, I think I was sort of figuring out my own writing, too, and then it took a while for the places, to, to for me to find the places that felt receptive to what I was writing. So, and then I think it, it kind of snowballed in a nice way where it became easier to find various, you know, corners or places, or Ziziva as the um, San Francisco or Bay Area Journal. I had said once in an interview that I re- like to write, do exercises about fonts, and Howard Junker was wrote me an email or a note and said, so does that mean you have stories about fonts? Because I'd be interested in taking a look at that, and that's not something I would have thought anyone would have wanted to see, so that was actually a really nice thing about, you know, the contact of the editor looking for something different and then so then they did publish a story of all these little font vignettes um, where all the characters are fonts and Garamond and SB and Helvetica and all of them so so I think that was you know this is of a being a great journal that is just interested in, in a whole range of kind of kinds of writing so I think sometimes it will still feel hard um, but I think there's a lot of interest in a lot of different kinds of writing. And actually, I think it's a good time for sort of magical writing in America right now. It feels like a ripe time. Yeah, it, it certainly does. Um, I'm wondering, uh, your work seems like it'd be really uniquely suited for um, experimentation on the Internet. Have you considered that? I haven't done that much, but there, like, there's one website called locusnovus.com where I gave them a story. They do stories where then they're illustrated with flash animation, but they do it. So they have all these various stories on there, and I loved them. And so I sent them a very, very short piece because it has to be short in order for the just the you know 
pages and the animation to work together. And they did a, such a really cool job with that. So, so I loved that that happened. And it would be really fun to do more of that, too. But I haven't done anything in a while. So that's maybe just an open question mark for me to think about. Yeah. Now, could you talk a little bit about um, the influence of being a, a teacher and a writer at the same time, how that crosstalk happens for you? I mean, it's, it's interesting because teaching is so social. So it feels like on the one hand, they're very similar because it's writing and talking about writing. But the other hand, they're so different because writing is, you know, me in the chair and the computer and that kind of solitary wrestling. And then teaching is about interacting with people and trying to talk about ideas and look at their work and talk about their work. But it's, then they go off to do their writing in a solitary way and then they come back and we talk about it. So it's just, I feel like there's something very distinct in that way. But what's good about teaching is... It constantly means that the teacher has to refine her notion of what writing is. So I'm always up there thinking, well, what does writing mean to me this year that's different than last year? What are the things that are preoccupying me? And I'm amazed at how a class doesn't work if I just do the standard things that worked last year if I'm no longer interested in them. Like I feel like the students do better if I'm more um, actually engaged in what I'm teaching for myself. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, but, but it's true. Well, what you just said really interests me. What, how have your interests changed, and how has that changed your writing? I think they're always changing in a certain way, so it's, it's such a big question, but I guess I would say that... Um, let me try and think of something specific in the moment. I think, um, you know, like, like Linda Berry has a great exercise in her book, What It Is, which is this writing book about writing, and it, it's has the students. She teaches this writing class, which sounds fantastic. And she says, write about 10 different mothers you knew growing up, um, which is such an evocative exercise, right? Not your own mother, but 10 other mothers that you knew. You can immediately start thinking of these mothers who somehow felt really specific, of course, and your kids, so you're observing very kid-like things. So I think maybe um, trying out exercises like that when I've been almost exclusively trying to push students out of reality to think, well, I can mix in some of the reality too and then push them out of the reality that there's space for both. So I think that's part of it. Or if I'm particularly compelled by um, how a writer stretches time, then to say, let's do an exercise specifically about how you can leap around in time. So it's changing constantly, semester to semester, which I think it should be. I think, you know, my own engagement with writing should always be refreshed in some way. We're, we're, you know, in, engaged in a really intensely political time right now, and I wonder if you consider talk to me uh, about how uh, politics are considered in your writing, if at all. Well, I think it's like, I mean, I think they always get in there, right? So it's, it's. I won't think consciously to say I'm going to write a political story that means X. And for example, I have this story in Willful Creatures, the big man and the little man story called The End of the Line, which is a big man starts torturing a little man. And people will read that politically as sort of a statement about countries persecuting other countries or slavery or all these various ways it can be read, which is really exciting for me that people can see that in it. But I didn't necessarily go in there with that agenda. In fact, I found it like a scary story to write because I thought, what does this mean? You know, what is this story about, really? And the fact that it can be about things that are political feels very satisfying, or it can be read out allegorically that way. So, I mean, I feel really excited about Obama, really excited about the new administration coming in, so I feel hopeful politically, but it also feels like a very intense time financially, and there's, there's good change and scary change ahead. So, I mean, generally, I think creatively that's a good thing for people. But, but do I... Do I have a specific agenda in terms of my work? No. 
and it interests me that you're that you talk about how um, your work can be interpreted in specific ways, but that you yourself don't interpret in specific ways. Do you leave it open for diffraction for from different viewpoints deliberately? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I what I'll try to do, and and I don't try sit down trying to do this, but what I think happens is to really turn off that part of the mind that's the analytical part and really have that part go to sleep while I'm writing. And that part can come in later and it comes in the rest of my life. It's a pretty strong part of how I like to pick apart things and look at the world. But in writing, I feel like looking for meaning is actually not my job. And my job is more about trying to tell the story or try to find the thing that feels charged so that I know there's meaning in it. It's like I can have an intuition that something, you know, George Saunders, I think, calls it the the spark in the story or or the juice or the charge or something where you just you can kind of feel that and that lets me know okay there's some symbolism here there's some layer here but I don't want to know what it is because once I know what it is it actually will short circuit the story I've been speaking with Amy Bender her latest book is Willful Creatures thank you for joining me Amy Uh, my pleasure thanks for having me always You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.